Hi. We don't do this very often, but it's the end of the year, and we want to remind you that we do need your help to keep this podcast going. To date, we've brought you 120 science stories by 120 different people. We're quite proud of that, and we're going to keep going for a long time yet, but we do need your help. So please consider making a tax-deductible donation at storycollider.org slash donate. That's storycollider.org slash donate. Thanks. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it, out. I it was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true stories of how science has affected people's lives. As the holidays are here, we're bringing you a couple of our favorites from the past couple years. This week's storyteller is Amy Harmon. The story was recorded in February 2012 at Union Hall in Brooklyn. The theme of the event was brains. Um, so the day last July that my editor told me that he had lost enthusiasm for the story that I had been working on for the last 18 months. <clears throat> I stumbled back to my desk in the New York Times newsroom and sat down trying to look normal to all my colleagues while also trying not to throw up. <clears throat> the thing was, I couldn't really blame him entirely. The story had taken a long time to report, obviously, but that wasn't so much the issue. I had, two months earlier, reported it to its logical end. And now it was time for the payoff. It was time to write. And it just wasn't coming together. And I wasn't being a perfectionist, as I sometimes am, and he wasn't being crazy. Like, the story just, it just wasn't that good. It wasn't that I had nothing on the page. I had a lot on the page. I had three elaborate outlines. One was handwritten, one was in Microsoft Word, and one was in Microsoft Word outline mode, which I took a <laughs> tutorial, like I took the, tu the Microsoft Word outline tutorial in order to figure out like how to make this really careful outline. But, you know, and then I had, so, and I had 10,000 words. <clears throat> for what was supposed to be no longer than a 5,000-word story. And then I had another ten, different 10,000 words. <laughs> but somehow, like, all of the drafts were just missing something. We had even, like, experimented. We were starting to experiment with, like, putting audio and video in the story to sort of, like, jazz it up. But um, it, it wasn't working. And um, whatever the level of my editor's enthusiasm, I, I needed to finish the story. Um, I needed to finish the story for several reasons. One was that I cared about the story. Um, it, the story was about Justin Kanya, a young man with autism, who, um, with the help of a great teacher at his public high school in Montclair, New Jersey, was hoping to get a job before he graduated. And like most people with autism, Justin had trouble relating to other people. The way his brain is wired makes it difficult for him to understand like basic social cues and social interactions that others of us find you know, easy and natural. And um, at age three, his parents were told, your son will never count change, he will never ride the bus alone, he will never marry. Uh, he didn't speak in sentences until he was 10. But at age 19, when I began to follow Justin, he had developed a great gift for drawing. His art had been sold at the Outsider Art Fair and exhibited in different shows around the city and in, in New Jersey. Um, he loved animation. 
he could tell you the year any Disney film had come out, who the animators were, whether it had bombed at the box office or was the best, one of the best movies of all time, two descriptions that he took great pleasure in. Um, <clears throat> and above all, Justin had a strong desire to live and work independently. So to me, this was a story. This is like an important story. This is a story about tolerance of people who are neurologically different. Would society bend to accommodate Justin? Could Justin learn enough of the social rules so that he could hold a real job, maybe even one in, his, in the area of his great passion, animation? Um, you know, what else is journalism for except to examine these kinds of, these kinds of social, important social issues? Um, <coughs> So, you know, even if I didn't know people with autism and have a personal connection to, to someone on the autism spectrum, I, you know, I, I would have wanted to do this story. Um, another reason I needed to finish the story, did I mention that I had been working on it for 18 months? <laughs> yes. Not 18 months straight. Just for the record, I did do other, other things off and on. But, you know, 18 months even off and on is a long time to be working on a story for a newspaper. I mean, probably the average time that it takes to do a story for a newspaper is three days. <laughs> so, and I specialize, I, like, I do long stories, and this was by far the longest story that I had ever attempted. Um, so at this point, I don't think it, was an, it would be an exaggeration to say that my job was on the line. <laughs> um, originally, because I had kind of developed a reputation as like a long-form prima donna, I had, I had, I had pitched the story. I pitched it as a week in the life. Okay, so originally it was just going to be I was going to go follow Justin for a week and sort of account, you know, sort of do a snapshot of his life rather than a like something with a big arc. Um, <clears throat> but you know, I went to do. I so I followed him for a week and I came back and I and I I, I, I had gone to his. He he had an internship at that point at an an, a local animation studio, and I you know took all these notes and it was like a struggle for him and it was a struggle for them, but it was promising and I I just you know like I came back and I said you know it would be so much better if I could follow him until the end of this program. So he was in his last like two years of high school and I I I was like in the middle of you know, the first of those years. And I said, you know, like, wouldn't it be great if we could write a story? You know, the story would be like, would Justin get the job? You know, that was a good story. It would be like suspenseful, it would be illuminating. And so my editors were like, <laughs> and you know, maybe because I had won this Pulitzer a couple of years earlier, and it brought with it a certain amount of goodwill, a certain amount of capital that I was about to squander. <laughs> <laughs> They were like, all right, you know, if you really think it'll be so much better to follow him for the whole time, you know, okay, but, you know, fine, do it. But, you know, there's the unspoken trade-off is, well, but it better fucking be good. <laughs> better be good. And, you know, it's not that unreasonable. It's like, you know, your colleagues are, are, are turning out 100 stories a year. You want to do three stories? Like, give us the goods, you know, let's see it. So, you know, would they actually fire me if I couldn't deliver? Maybe not, but would they let me do another of these like long form, many month stories in which I get to see people change over time that you know I'd come to really love? No, they would not. <laughs> they would not. So you know. So okay. So <clears throat> here we are in July, last July. Justin had gotten a job earlier that summer, not at the animation studio, but at a local bakery where he had learned the uh, delicate and rewarding art of dipping cookies. He, he, he liked it. It was, it was a real job. He got paid for this job. And, you know, it was a good story. So, like, I, you know, it was a good story. It was uplifting, but it was realistic. 
Um, you know, it sort of showed how with the right support, someone like Justin could live, you know, get a job, work, be a productive member of society, and maybe one day, Disney. Maybe, still, maybe, if, you know, if things... So, you know, but the story, for some reason, was just flat. It was flat. It just wasn't, it, you know, it seemed like it should be good. It had all of the right elements. It just wasn't that good. <laughs> and basically, on this day, July 21st, 2011, any leftover Pulitzer goodwill I may have had had run out. I had spent my capital, it was gone. Because another thing that had happened that summer was at the New York Times we had gotten a new executive editor. And it was um, Jill Abramson had taken over from Bill Keller. She was the first woman editor of the Times. Yay, 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 yay! It was great, it was great. It was exciting for me and other women in journalism and, and men in journalism also. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, it was also clear. So, like, but every, every move that she made was going to be scrutinized. And, you know, it was, it was anything like my story that was so long and unwieldy and just, like, weird would have to get her stamp of approval before it went in the paper, especially if it was going to run in September, which was kind of the official, when she really officially took over, even though she was kind of running things over the summer, too. So... At the meeting that morning with the editor who I worked with directly, who the editor who had until then been my champion for this story, he basically said, look, you have a week. You have a week to get it in shape. We're going to show it to Jill. And either she was going to tell us to like just cut it away. Like, the average length of a New York Times story is 1,100 words. I mean, so you know, she could tell us to cut it to 1,100. She has been known <laughs> to tell people <laughs> to cut things to 1,100 words or shorter. So, so either she was going to tell us to cut it and sort of jam it into the paper in August when nobody reads the paper because they're all at the beach. Um, <clears throat> or she could decide to wait, to hold it, like let us polish it, wait till after Labor Day and run it as though like it was something that the paper actually wanted readers to read. <laughs> um, so, oh, and one more thing. So if she um, wanted to run it in August and just get it in, get it over with, be done, um, the fact that I had my vacation scheduled for the first two weeks of August, like my first vacation in a very long time, did not matter. My editor made that clear. Uh, I would be spending that time just getting the story ready and getting it in the paper and getting it out of you know his hair and getting it out of her hair, getting it out of the way, sweeping it under the rug. So you know, um, and my, he did say that wherever I was planning to be on vacation, I could work from there. <laughs> So, you know, that was that was nice. And uh, that happened to be a lake house um, in New York where, you know, uh, had no internet access, like with friends who like purposely had no internet, no Wi-Fi, nothing. So, you know, uh, so, that, um, so that brings me to the last and, <clears throat> yes, most important reason that I needed to finish this story. Did I mention that I had been working on it for 18 months? <laughs> so, yes. So my family was going to disown me if I didn't finish the story. I mean, I, over the previous couple of months, I had reached the point where I was so desperate to finish and yet so unable to finish that, um, you know, every moment away from the story seemed to just be prolonging the pain and, like, you know, maybe, like, I was going to get that potential breakthrough in the 10 minutes that I was away from my computer. So, you know, my, chi my, my daughter's, like, childhood milestones were flying by and she was, like, learning how to ride a bike and I was working on the story. She was swimming across the pool for the first time at her grandmother's house and I was working on my story. And, you know, it also led to um, a number of conversations with my husband. Like, you know, I know it seems like I should be able to take 10 minutes and do the dishes, but, like, I, I can't. I just can't really <laughs> And, you know, I, I have to work. I have to finish. And wonderful and supportive and saintly, though he is, he's here. Yeah. 
<laughs> it was not going to fly for much longer. Okay, so given this new plan of showing the story to Jill in a week, I had promised my editor this morning a new draft by the end of the day. But I had a more immediate dilemma confronting me, which is that Justin and his mother were actually coming to, into the city that afternoon. They, they lived in Montclair. Um, and I had been talking to Justin's mother on the phone every day, and his teacher, and emailing with them, and his boss, I'd be, like all the, the sort of the, the people in Justin's life as I was writing, checking facts, like rearranging things, needing to know new things, just that, that's my process. Um, but Justin <coughs> does not talk on the phone. He's like, you know, thanks for calling, bye. <laughs> and he does not much of an emailer either. So I hadn't seen Justin in weeks. And they were coming in to have lunch with a young woman named Paloma, um, who was also on the autism spectrum. And she was also an aspiring artist. And she had developed what seemed like, from what, I've heur what I had heard, I talked to like her mother about it, a little crush on Justin. Um, after seeing his art, she had seen his art on display somewhere on the Upper West Side, and she had like, followed him on his website. And Paloma, Justin had once described it to me, Paloma is a big fan of mine. <laughs> um, <coughs> so I had already met, they were having lunch, and then they were going to go back to Paloma's apartment, his, her family's apartment, and I'd already missed the lunch because of this like fun meeting that I was having with my editor. Um, and I had about 10 minutes to decide whether to like hop in a cab and like run over and, and observe Justin with Paloma. Um, or, you know, just they were going to be hanging out there for like an hour or so before going back to Montclair. And I was sitting there at my desk in the newsroom trying to decide whether to tear myself away from, you know, as I was like sort of lashed to my laptop and I like, should I leave for this, you know, for this hour or two hours? And, and, and I was, so like the whole kind of 18 months were flashing before my mind. <laughs> and I was just thinking, you know, what, what had gone wrong? What had gone wrong? Because, you know, I felt like I had done everything right. <laughs> Like, you know, I mean, uh, yes, it had taken over a year to do the reporting. But in that time, I was efficient. I was focused. If I had learned anything from my previous experiences working on this type of story, I knew that you had to report to the theme of your story, right? Like, so I, I couldn't be Justin's biographer. Like, his mother wanted to tell me all these things, and I was, like, trying to stay on message. You know, this was a story about him getting a job, and I was disciplined about it. So when his teacher told me about this, his, he had this budding friendship with someone else in the program that he was um, in at school, I noted it, but I didn't really pursue it. And when his mother told me about him holding hands with Paloma the last time they had met, I was like, oh, wow, that's kind of interesting. But, you know, I had already made these outlines, these, like, elaborate outlines, and, like, they, they didn't really fit in my outline. So, you know, I, I thought, okay, like, but I'm, I, th I was doing the right thing. I mean, my editors wanted the story. I had to finish the story. So I, I also thought I had done an excellent job, if I did say so myself, a fly-on-the-wall reporting, right? So in the grand tradition of journalism giants like Gay Talese and John McPhee and Susan Sheehan, I had set out not to interview and like get good quotes, but to observe. I wanted to tell my story through scenes and dialogue, and I had like this very you know image of myself as this narrative reporter. And um, and and with Justin as my subject, it was actually much easier to be the fly on the wall than it had been with previous subjects because. <coughs> 
previous, with other people I had written about, it was often kind of hard to fade into the background because they just always wanted to like explain themselves to me. <laughs> like tell me about things and draw me into their stories when I was just trying to observe. Justin, on the other hand, was happy to completely ignore me. Like he ignored many people in his life that who, you know, if they would let him, he was happy to like sort of be in his own autistic world. Um, so I would like, you know, follow him to the bus stop and he'd just be like walking many paces ahead of me listening to his classical music on his iPhone. Like he just wouldn't, you know, he didn't want me to interrupt his routine and that was fine with me too. And we were all like, we were all good. And you know, so he was, I, I would, so occasionally I would ask him a question like, you know, why do you, why do you draw so small? He, he filled these composition books with these tiny, tiny drawings of like every known cartoon character. And I'd be like, why do you, why do you write so small? He's no questions, please. No more questions, please. No more questions. <laughs> like, why is Amy Harmon here? He would sometimes announce like to like no one in particular. <laughs> like, <laughs> You know, even though I had been there for like hours, he would just be like, why, why is Amy Harmon here? Now, I did know, I mean, I did know that he wanted me to do the story because he had told me on several occasions that it was going to make him a famous artist, which, um, you know, he saw as a plus. I mean, he, he understood the link between like possible front page, you know, New York Times newspaper story and, and you know, fame. And he, he liked fame. He liked it when people, so he was never outright hostile to my presence. And, and there were times I realized as I was sitting there at my desk, in the newsroom, um, fighting my nausea. You know, I, there were times when he seemed to welcome my presence. Um, like, like the previous January, after I had been off like for several months on a totally unrelated story, I attended a benefit where some of his art was being shown, and he was there. And I was talking to his uh, dad, and he, he came over to the table, and he said, you know, as though we had kind of, like, were picking up in the middle of a conversation, sadly, he told me, <laughs> Sadly, I am no longer working at Nightstand Creations, which was the animation studio where I had last seen him. Um, at Nightstand, you know, th that internship had ended, and for several you know, various reasons, it had not resulted in a job for Justin. He said, um, now I am dipping cookies, he told me. Now I'm dipping cookies. Maybe someday I will decorate cake. And, you know, it almost seemed for a minute that, that Justin, like, knew that that was something I would want to know. Uh, you know, like he was all like, did he want me to know? Did he want me to know? You know, was, did it matter to him that I did know? Did I matter to him? But I was being a good reporter. I was like scrambling. He was like, he'd just come up. I, I was scrambling for a paper and a pen and to write down what he was saying. And, you know, I wasn't part, I wasn't part of his story. Like that's an important part of journalism, right? I wasn't part of the story. I was just taking notes. And there was another time <coughs> that occurred to me that in the spring where I had, I had arrived at the Rico Moresca Gallery in Chelsea where he was having his first solo show. And just at the same time as he did, I was like standing in the lobby of the building waiting for the elevator and he came up like several paces ahead of his mother who was like trailing behind and he's, hi Justin, I said hi, you know, how, how are you? And he said, Amy, I am nervous. And Amy, <laughs> he said, he took my hand and he pressed it against his heart and he said, my heart is beating faster. And we went up in the elevator and he said, Amy, stick by me. And I, you know, and I, I would have stuck by him, but you know, I was a reporter and when he, the elevator doors opened and Justin was like, saw a, another artist there drinking Coca-Cola and he was like, you know, Coca-Cola is bad for your bones. You shouldn't drink it. <laughs> I, was, I, I had to get that down, right? I had to get that down. So like, I, I, I couldn't really like stick by him in that way. I was, I was working. So um, there was one, something else that Justin had told me kind of rang in my head that afternoon as I sat at my desk. <clears throat> it was a plot summary of Pinocchio, his favorite Disney movie, as he put it, of all time. Um, 
So I had asked him, you know, what, what's, I couldn't quite remember, I mean, of course I remember the, the nose growing, but I couldn't quite remember the, you know, what Pinocchio was. What, what's Pinocchio about, I, I asked him. Um, Pinocchio, he had said, is about a wooden puppet brought to life by a blue fairy who goes through mischief and mayhem in order to become a real boy. So I, as soon as he said that, I knew that I was going to use that in the story. I was like writing it down as fast as I could. I was like making him repeat it because it was like the perfect metaphor for what Justin was trying to do, right? He was trying to become like join the real world and get a job and like not have to live in an institution or sort of fade from, from view. And, and um, but on that afternoon, so I had this all, you know, I had this all down in my notebook. But, you know, it struck me that I had been acting much more the part of a wooden puppet than a real human being with Justin. And maybe that was my problem. He was, he might have been autistic, but I was being like super journalistic. <laughs> and um, there was one other thing I did before like deciding whether to go see him that afternoon. And um, so Pinocchio was Justin's favorite movie. It, like it's um, sort of logical to understand that it, the, the, the theme song, When You Wish Upon a Star, was his favorite song. And several times during our months together, he had burst out spontaneously sing singing this song. And uh, one time, we actually captured it on video. And you know, since we were trying to like weave video into the story, my colleague in the video unit had like made these links for me so I could look at these videos. And so I, I, I clicked the link. I'm going to play it now, just the audio part, so you can hear what I was listening to. So this is Justin. White couples. Out of the blue, fate steps in and sees it through. When you wish upon a star, your dreams come true. When you wish upon a star, was one of the most popular Disney songs of all time. Okay, so after that, I knew that I needed to go and see Justin. I needed to finish the story, yes, but I also needed to find the hero of my story. So I strode back over to my editor's office and I told him like, I wasn't gonna be able to have another draft that afternoon. I, I really needed to go do that. I felt like I, I, I needed to go and see Justin. And to his credit, he was like, you know, okay, you like do what you need to do, like do what you need to do, and you know, and and he, I think he also said like, so you mean there's like a girl in Justin's life, and you, you haven't mentioned that before? <laughs> like, so I was like, yeah, you know, I think this could be kind of an interesting couple of hours. So I, I think I'd better go go and do that. And he was like, all right, you know, give me the draft tomorrow. Um, and so at Paloma's parents' apartment across town, Justin greeted me at the door, and I can't, I I was I you know asked him like as I. Do I, I was asking questions. Of, I, I couldn't remember what exactly I was asking him, and he he said, "Amy." He sort of hushed me. He was like, "Amy, you ask too many questions." It was kind of like he was tutoring me in social skills. Like, you know, like, like Amy, like stop. And then he put his arm around me, and he led me to Paloma's room, and he said, "Amy, come here, and Paloma will explain to you why she draws these foxes that she draws on the wall." <laughs> And, you know, Justin, like, he knew what I needed. He knew what I needed, and he was, like, putting himself in my shoes, the thing that was, like, so difficult for, for someone with autism to do. And um, I think I realized then that in my eagerness to be 
the perfect fly on Justin's wall that to you know, sort of record his progress in the world of the workplace, I had missed the much more profound change in his life. And you know, so he wasn't just becoming like a functional member of society, he was becoming a compassionate person. And he was having relationships with people. He was relating to people in a whole different way. He had like made his first friend in school. He had like a glimmer of a girlfriend in Paloma. And he was trying, if I would only just respond, to relate to me too. So <coughs> I wish I could tell you that I ran back to the office that day and like banged out the story and it was all <laughs> perfect. But you know, the truth is that so this was a Thursday and it took me a week to really churn out the next draft. Um, but there was a lot more in this one about Justin's relationships and Justin's friendship with this guy Gower at school and Justin's relationship with Paloma. And and there was video and audio I put in so that people would, so that I could sort of, like, my reporterly words would not get in the way of Justin. And I, I, I just, I thought and I hoped that Justin came through in this draft because I had finally kind of opened my heart to him. Um, and we gave it to Jill at 5 o'clock on Friday, <laughs> July 29th. On the next day, the 30th, was the official start of my vacation. So the story, it was still ridiculously long. It was 7,500 words, which is the equivalent of three full pages in the New York Times, like <laughs> including like plus like a few hundred words on the front page, which we were hoping to get. Um, you know, the, in recent memory, only the WikiLeaks memos and like <laughs> and it, like a huge investigation into the BP oil rigged explosion in the Gulf of Mexico had taken up a similar <laughs> space. <coughs> so it was ambitious, but you know, and I, I I had no idea what to expect. I was still prepared, so I wasn't sure when we would hear, would hear back. It was Friday afternoon, the end of the day. You know, maybe she wouldn't read it till the after the weekend. And I asked my editor if he would please let me know if he heard anything from her. And I went home and I like checked the web for like, coffee shops near our lake house where we <laughs> might have internet access because I was prepared to. So we were driving up the next day, and on, on Saturday morning at. 10.39 a.m., <laughs> just as we were about to get in the car, I got an email from my editor. He had forwarded Jill's email to him, to me, <clears throat> so it seemed that she liked the story. and She wanted us to polish it and run it in September. She saw no reason to cut it. <laughs> and on top of Jill's email, my editor had written one line of his own, have a good vacation. <laughs> That was Amy Harmon. Amy is a national correspondent for the New York Times who covers the impact of science and technology on American life. She has won some awards, including a Pulitzer Prize in 2008 for her series, The DNA Age. You can follow her on Twitter at Amy underscore Harmon. That's Amy underscore H-A-R-M-O-N. For more science stories, take a look at storycollider.org, where we have our magazine, archives of the podcast, and upcoming events. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Weck, Darren Barker, and Ari Daniel Shapiro. The podcast is produced by Rose Eveleth. Additional help from Brooke Williams, Lena Groger, Josh McCall, and Raphael Benin. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Union Hall for hosting the show, and happy holidays to everyone. Thanks for listening. <laughs>